Okay, we are today, we are doing uh, Parashat Mishpatim, which on the outside does not really seem very interesting, but it's tremendously interesting for a number of reasons. Let's just start off with a little introduction. Parashat Mishpatim is the third largest parasha in terms of how many mitzvot it contains. The highest level parasha is Ki Tetzeh, which is 74 mitzvot. Parashat Emor has 63 mitzvot. Parashat Mishpatim has 53 mitzvot. So this Shabbat, we're going to read 53 mitzvot, 24 positive mitzvot, which are to-dos, and 29 negative mitzvot, which are don'ts. So it seems like a very cut and dry kind of parasha, a very legalistic parasha. But that's what it means. Mishpatim means laws which are legalistic. However, we find this week's parasha is interesting. Why? Because the God of Revelation, in last week's parasha, the revelation at Sinai, and Rashi says the revelation continued in this week's parasha. All these laws were given on Sinai, according to Rashi, in revelation, in revelation form. So he was, so Moshe Rabbeinu had prophecy, and that's why the parasha starts with a vav. Rashi says to add to the previous, so we think that, you know, the, the 10 sayings were given on Mount Sinai, but the truth is many, many mitzvot were given on Mount Sinai, including this whole parasha of Mishpatim was given on Sinai. And there's a remarkable interweaving in this week's parasha of property rights, of religious duties, including the sanctity of Shabbat and the details of Kashrut. And Judaism, we know, is more than just a legal system. It's not just a book of law. The Torah is not just a book of law. Otherwise, it would have started with the first mitzvah in the Torah, but it doesn't. It starts with introduction. It starts with the creation of the world. It starts with the uh, Mount, uh, we, uh, it starts with uh, Noah, it starts with the Tower of Babel, and so on and so forth. There's other stories in the Torah which are not legalistic stories. Well, the stories of a forefathers, not legalistic stories. So it's more than just a legal system. The true literal meaning of Torah is to show a path, a more derech, it's like a GPS. Our GPS in life is the Torah. So we're showing a path in life, it's a more derech in, in life. It starts with cosmology, it has theology, has stories, anecdotes, poems, and even songs, shira. And the Talmud is a brilliant interweaving of questions and answers, theological discourses, biographies, uh, moral parables. So if Judaism was simply a religion of law, its major texts should have been presented in the fashion of legal law books, cut and dried. In fact, that is what the Shulchan Aruch is. A Shulchan Aruch is a legal code. Uh, but however, the Torah was not given as a legal code. If the Torah was given as a legal code, it would have been like a Shulchan Aruch, just plain Jewish law and that's it. No stories, no theology, no philosophy, nothing else. However, the Torah is a total worldly system. It's holistic. It's philosophy, theology, education, ethics, morals, laws, everything. So what is the direction of the biblical and the Talmudic laws which shape Jewish society? So the Shulchan Aruch, or Yosef Karo, which is the, the main code of Jewish law for Jews all over the world, starts with a very general statement. He says a person should be strong like a lion to wake up in the morning to serve Hashem. So Shulchan Aruch starts off with the laws of waking up in the morning and waking up like a lion to serve God. And obviously the first, one of the first things we say as Jews in the morning is the Shema Yisrael, to accept upon ourselves the yoke of heaven. So one of the first things we wake up in the morning, obviously we say Modeani, other things, other blessings. And then one of the first things we say is Shema Yisrael, to accept upon ourselves as the yoke of heaven. So Shukran says, when you wake up in the morning, wake up like a lion to do the will of God. So according to Shukran Aruch, the will of God is what should shape our lives. To do the will of God, it should be the first concern for a person when they wake up in the morning. I want to wake up. I want to do the will of God. I want to wake up like a lion. I want to do the will of God with strength, with gusto, with energy. And that's a very important statement to start our day. And that is make God the center of your life. That's a Shulchan Aruch. And the Shulchan ends off. With the laws of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, with laws of mourning, of Avelut. And over there he says, also, when a, the last thing a person should say 
on the deathbed is Shema Yisrael. So a person should start off their mornings every morning with Shema Yisrael. And a person's life should end with Shema Yisrael. So according to the Shulchan Aruch, God should be at the center of our lives right at the beginning of our day and should be the center of our lives at the end of our days. The center of our lives, God should be the center of our lives at the beginning of our day and God should be the center of our lives at the end of our days. So a person got to remain God-centered from the first morning, moment of the morning to the last moment of one's life. Now, halacha means walking. Halicha, halichot olam lo, altikri halichot ela halachot. We say every day in our end of our shacharit prayers. It's walking. Halacha is walking. Halacha teaches us how to walk through life. As I said, it's our GPS. It's a more derech. Torah is a more derech, a GPS. So teaching us how to live every moment morally and meaningfully. How should a person live? And the answer is we should live morally, we should live ethically, and we should live with meaning and purpose in our lives. However, Rambam does not begin with the laws of waking up, but it begins with the laws of Yesodei HaTorah, the philosophy of God's world and the philosophy of the Torah, ethical monotheism. The Rambam combines ethical monotheism and in the end of the Rambam he ends not with the laws of mourning although the laws of mourning uh, do feature towards the end of the Rambam at the end of the Rambam he ends with the laws of kings and the laws of kings right at the end of the laws of kings he talks about Mashiach and he talk, he says mentions a very very important concept at the end of the Rambam he says we don't want Mashiach to take vengeance on our enemies um, we don't want Mashiach to rule the world. We want Mashiach to make the world a better place. So he ends off with the laws of government of a state. He ends up laws of the messianic age, which is the purpose of law, he says, is to create a nation and a world where there will be no evil or destruction. So according to Rambam's view, it's a much wider view. It's not just about God-centered, saying Shema for oneself, it's to do with the whole world coming together under God. So it's not just an individual program, it's a program for the entire world. That's massive. According to Rambam, Judaism is not just about the Jews. Judaism is about making the world a better place and making the world a place of peace. In fact, making the world a utopia. Interesting. And this is uh, mainly from the prophet Isaiah, as we see in the United Nations in New York, they have this famous Isaiah wall, where they have the famous pasuk, the famous verse from Isaiah, you should beat your swords into plowshares, no nation will lift up uh, their sword on the other nation, and there'll be no more wars. So this is a kind of utopic vision, vision given to us by the prophets, that the Rambam incorporates in his code of Jewish law, Mishneh Torah. So our task is not only to serve God by making him the center of our lives, we must also serve him to bring about a utopia. That's amazing, that's amazing. So how do we do that? And the answer, that's why we need a combination, not just of a law, of dry law, but we need a combination of ethics and morals and everything else, the stories that go into making us better people. So there's a beautiful Gemara in Makot 23b. And this Gemara really tries to find what are the main values of Judaism? What are the main values of Judaism? Rabbi Simlai said, 613 mitzvot were given to Moses. So this is a very famous Gemara from where we get this concept of 613 mitzvot. Where do we learn 613 mitzvot? Because Torah tzivalanu Moshe. The Torah was given to us by Moses. Torah tzivalanu Moshe. And the word Torah has got a Gematria of 611. And two mitzvot were given to us directly from God, which we heard at Mount Sinai in last week's parasha, Yitro. The first two commandments were heard by everyone directly from God. And therefore, together, we have 613 commandments. So the first thing is 613 commandments. However, he says, Rav Sibli says in the Talmud, in Makot 23b, he says, Micha, the prophet Micha, in chapter 6, verse 8, states them as three mitzvot. Micha comes along and he takes the 613 mitzvot and he says, you know what? We can sum up these 613 mitzvot in three different paths. 
Number one, he says, do mishpat. Mishpat is justice, love kindness, and walk with God in a modest way. Three things. Micha sums up Judaism in three ways. Number one, do mishpat. Mishpat is what our parasha is all about, is justice. Number two is to love kindness, which is mainly parashat kiddoshim, the mitzvah of loving a fellow Jew and the mitzvah of doing kindness to a fellow Jew and walk in a hidden way with God, which is walk with modesty with God, not to flaunt, not to show off, not to be arrogant and egotistic. So three different paths to service of God, which encompass, he says, all the different mitzvot. The prophet Isaiah says, he sums them up as two different parts. Number one, observe mishpat, and do tzedakah. So instead of using the word chesed, which is kindness, he uses the words tzedakah. And Habakkuk comes along, Prophet Habakkuk, and Habakkuk was the, was the kid who was revived uh, by uh, Elisha, who's the prophet Habakkuk. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, tzaddik bebunato ichyeh. The whole Torah on one foot is a righteous person will live by his faith. A righteous person will live by his faith. What does that mean? A person should live by their faith. A person who really believes in God will not cheat, will not lie, will be self-governing, will be self-disciplining, will be self-tremendous self-control. So that is the whole Torah on one foot, according to Habakkuk. And that is be self-controlling. A person should have fear of God and be self-controlling. A person should be a tzaddik, which is righteous, which is doing the right thing, keeping away from bad. Uh, the Mesilad uh, says, what is a tzaddik? Three things. Sur meirah, keep away from bad, don't do any bad. Asetov, do good. And number three is nikiyut, which is clean from all kinds of abirot. Clean, complete cleanliness. So that's a tzaddik. Be'murato should live by his faith. What do you mean faith? Uh, the Raman says there's no such thing as faith. The Raman says... The first mitzvah is not to believe in God. The first mitzvah is to know there is a God. A tzaddik has to know there is a God, and God is watching 24-7, and therefore a person will be self-policing. A person who is self-policing, obviously, that is the key to the mitzvot. In other words, what is the mitzvot trying to get us to do? And the answer is a mitzvah gets us to be self-aware of God. A person, whenever they make a bracha, it's a reminder there's a God. A person passes by the mezuzah. Interesting. The Ramam says, every time you pass by a mezuzah, there should be an interaction. A person should interact with a mezuzah. What does it mean interact with a mezuzah? Have a conversation. Yeah, here's mezuzah. Mezuzah is reminding me of Shin Dalibud, Hashem. And therefore, I have to know Hashem is here. Hashem is watching me. Hashem is everywhere I go. So a person needs to have an interaction. So Habakkuk says, that's it. That's the key to the Torah is one line. Sadiq. Three words. A righteous person will live by his emunah, his knowledge of God. Hillel obviously came along. The great Hillel, the famous Hillel, one of the great uh, rabbis in the time of the Second Temple. We all know about Hillel and Shammai. Hillel had this tremendously great uh, midah of patience. And he says, don't do to others what you don't want others to do to you. That is the whole Torah synopsis on one foot. The rest is all commentary. Go and learn. Elaz Hamudai, who was one of the famous rabbis in the Mishnah, he says, You will do what is right in the eyes of God. Always worry about what God will say. Uh, you want that divine stamp of approval. The person should always want that divine stamp of approval. You know, it's interesting because there's a book uh, of the Torah which is called the Book of Kings. And the Book of Kings discusses the, all the history of the kings of Israel and the history of the kings of Judah. And uh, most of the kings of Israel failed miserably, whereas some of the kings of Judah were very, very successful. And always at the end of the king's life, it has a line. And the line says either he did bad in the eyes of God or he did well in the eyes of God. And that is something which a person, that's what Elazar Modai says, a person should worry about what is God thinking about them at that time. A person should do what's right in the eyes of God. Don't worry about what people will think, but also what, worry about what God will say. And a person should think their lives, I want that divine housekeeping seal of approval. When a person passes away, a person should say, you know, I want that divine 
housekeeping seal of approval. On my grave, I want Hashem's stamp, <laughs> kosher. Uh, this guy was kosher in his life. He was a tzaddik in his life. That is what we should live for. That's Rabbi Lazar Modai. Do what's right in the eyes of God. That takes a lot of self-control and also a lot of wisdom because you've got to know what, what does God want. That person needs to study the Torah. That is our pathway. That is our guide. That is the goalpost we're trying to aim for. According to the tour, Hoshim Mishpat, chapter one, Abraham Avinu was chosen because he taught tzedakah and mishpat. The Torah says that. I chose Abraham because he taught tzedakah and mishpat, righteousness and justice, two of the major foundations of a society. And this week's parasha, righteousness and justice. These are the things that we're going to talk about today. Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, who is very, very famous, the Talmud says all his prayers, he knew if his prayers going to be answered or not. He had some kind of prophecy, and he was a very poor man. He lived very, in a very simple, simple way. He says, whoever people are comfortable with, God is comfortable with. Amazing, amazing. That's the Pirkei Avot, chapter 3, Mishnah 12. Whoever people are comfortable with, Hashem is comfortable with. And finally, Rabbi Akiva summed it up with a pasuk from Parshat Kedoshim. Ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha. You love your fellow Jew like yourself. So these are very, very famous sayings that you can sum up basically the idea, the ideals of the Torah. What are the ideals of the Torah? And all these previous sayings sum up these ideals of the Torah. Make us better people, um, to get us to uh, build the world into a better place, to get build up our emunah and Hashem, to be more aware of Hashem, to be self-policing, to be clean, to be righteous. Um, to do justice, to do tzedakah uh, and chesed and kindness. So all these things are building us up. The parasha is also, we said, we talked about earlier, how this parasha is also mitzvot which are given on Mount Sinai. Rashi says this vav connects us to Mount Sinai. So one of the mitzvot over here is a mitzvah of, it's very strange, it's very strangely written. It says, im kesef talvet ami. In with money, literally, it doesn't say with money, it says, if money, then lend it to my people. If money, lend it to my people. So Rashi says over here, it's one of the few places where if the word im does not mean if, it means um, when. When you have money, that's how Rashi explains it. When you have money, then lend it to my people. So a very interesting it doesn't say to give it to my people. It says, lend it to my people. So Ibn Ezra says, if you, the word if, he says in is not when, it's if. If you have money, if you're in a position financially to lend money to my people, then lend it to my people. Obviously, if you're not in a position to lend, don't lend. Soprano says, if poverty is not terminated, then lend. But ideally, the Torah is telling us, we should build a society where there's no poverty. Wow! Can you imagine building a society where there's no poverty? Can you imagine a building a society where there's no homelessness? Can you imagine building a society where there's no unemployment or unemployed people who are living in a very good state? Wow, that's amazing. Perfect society. According to Sforno, Sforno was a Ravadio Saforno, lived in Italy um, in the Middle Ages, and a very big uh, commentator on the Torah, beautiful commentator on the Torah, one of my favorite commentators, Saforno. He says, if poverty, if, what's the if? If poverty is not terminated, then lend. Ideally, he says, poverty should be terminated. The Shach, one of the commentators on the Shulchan Aruch, the truth is, he says, the world would be better off without any money at all. Because the root of all evil is money. Now, I don't know how you're going to build a society with no money. I don't know what he's talking about, really. But... Maybe that you could build a society, a perfect society with no such thing as money. Everyone has everything automatically with no money being shared. But if money was created, he says, which is what the status today is, if money was created, he says, use it constructively, lend it to the poor. So the Rambam, Rambam explains, if you have funds beyond your needs. So the question is, why does the Torah say if? Im, 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 im kesef. If there's money, talvedami. So the question is, what's, what's the if? So we have many different explanations. So one of the explanations is the Rambam. If you have funds beyond your needs, then lend it to the poor among you. Because the, uh, this is interesting. Um, you are holding on to what belongs to them. If you have more than what you need, 
lend it to others because it really belongs to them. It's more than what you need. That's a, that's a little bit of radical, uh, a little bit of a communism over there. If you have more than what you need, it doesn't really belong to you, it belongs to them, so lend it to them anyway. Um, so Rashi says a very interesting ethical kind of perspective. If you will lend the poor man within you, he says. What do you mean if you lend the poor man within you? Envisage yourself as poor and then you will lend. If you will envisage yourself as poor and you will think that you are on the need to need to have some money, then you will lend to others. You know, it's interesting because the Gemara says in Brachot, a very interesting thing. He says, the reward for fasting is not the fast. A person doesn't get a reward for the fast. It's the reward for the tzedakah a person gives after the fast. So the reward for a fast is not because a person fasted. It's because when they fast, they know what now what it's like to be starving. And they have much more sensitivity towards people who are hungry. And when they give money after they fast the tzedakah, that is the reward for the fast. Wow, that's an amazing concept that the reward for the fast is not the fasting. The reward for the fast is the sensitivity that a person gets that he will be able to give tzedakah after the fast to the poor because now he knows what it's like to be hungry. Wow. These are so this beautiful midrashim about King Solomon Shlomo Melech and who addressed in disguise. These are beautiful, <laughs> these are beautiful midrashim by Shlomo Melech. That you know, he was the king, smart guy. He wanted to really know what's going on in his kingdom. So he didn't rely on spies. He himself would go around in disguise to find out what's going on. And uh, there's, a, you know, there's a school in England apparently where they, their compassion is taught. One day they would uh, tie the guy's foot up so he'd be like a lame man. One day they'd make him go around with a patch on his eyes. He'd be like a blind man. And this way they would get sensitivity. So the same thing, Shlomo Menachun. He would go around uh, incognito to get some kind of sensitivity. What's going on around his kingdom? Not just to feel like a king all the time, but to feel what it's like to be a common person. This way he would have sensitivity to others. Anyway, I want to bring here, interesting, since we're talking about lending to the poor, this, there's a famous Rambam in the Laws of Gifts to the Poor, where he talks about the eight levels of tzedakah. There's eight levels of tzedakah. That's interesting because there's no word for charity in Hebrew. There's no thing as charity. Charity implies that there's no obligation to give. I'm just charity. Here, charity. I'll give you charity. However, tzedakah implies a kind of obligation, that it's a kind of righteousness. It's the right thing to do. Tzedakah means righteousness. Tzedakah means it's the right thing to do. So the Raman brings down eight different levels of tzedakah. And I'm going to go from the lowest to the highest. The lowest level of tzedakah is to give grudgingly to give grudgingly. What does that mean? You see a poor man and you don't really want to give and you take it out of your pocket and you force yourself and uh, take it, okay, here, take Grudging, grudging, without really good spirits. The second level, he says, is to give less, but to give with good spirits. So it's interesting, Sarakah is not just giving. Sarakah is also, is the idea of getting the poor person to feel good. So there's different values involved in tzedakah. It's not just the money amounts. It's also the idea that the person who's getting also feels good about it. So the higher level of tzedakah is basically making that poor person feel even better. So the, the, the better he feels, the higher the level of tzedakah. So number one we said is to give grudgingly. Because when you give gradually, it means you don't really want to give. And the, the poor man feels that. And, and like he's like, uh, instead of, you feel, you're like he feels like you're doing him a really big favor and you don't really want to do it and he just he's pushing you and he feels bad and therefore that's the lowest level but to give with good spirits even though you give a bit less that's the second level so the spirits how you give it it's very important how a person gives tzedakah is also very important uh, number three he says when a person gives after being asked and number four is to give before being asked so sometimes we don't know some people don't even tell you they need tzedakah but if a person can see someone who needs, who looks or looks like they need, they're in need, a person should give without even being asked. Imagine, and a person should be happy, and a person should uh, give uh, generously and be happy about giving. That's amazing. That's a very high level. Uh, number five, a donor does not know the recipient. The person gives, 
he doesn't know who he's even giving to. It says the poor, uh, the, the rabbis in those days would have a bag at the back and in the bag they had money and they would allow the poor people to take from behind them without knowing who they're giving to, a very high level. So the donor does not know who he's giving to, um, but the recipient knows who he's getting from. So that's number five. The donor does not know who the recipient is, but the recipient knows who the donor is. Number six, the recipient doesn't know the donor, but the donor knows the recipient. So high level is, and say he goes to the rabbi, he has a charity fund, and he say, rabbi, I wanna allocate money for so-and-so. So the donor knows the recipient, but the recipient does not know the donor. So that's level number six, a very high level of tzedakah, level number six. Number seven, neither one knows the other one. How is that possible? So again, you have an intermediary, a trusted intermediary, there's someone who's trusted, and uh, you can only fulfill your, your mitzvah through people who are trustworthy, that you check them out, they're trustworthy, they're not gonna pilfer it, they're not gonna steal it, they're not gonna use it for money laundering or anything else like that. So then, if the donor doesn't know the recipient and the recipient does not know the owner, there is no embarrassment, there's no way there's gonna be embarrassment, no one owes anyone a favor, and therefore, it's the le seventh level of tzedakah. But the highest level of tzedakah, which is interesting, is what we're talking about right now. In Kesef Talveh Ami, give a loan, a free interest loan. You know, it's every, every Jewish society around the world has a free loan society. Uh, it's a very Jewish thing. And the, uh, the Chavetz Chaim wrote a whole book about it, uh, where he talks about the mitzvah of tzedakah. And over there, he talks about this mitzvah of a free loan system because he says a free loan you can it's the highest level of sadaqah now why is it the highest level of sadaqah the Ramadan says it's the highest level of sadaqah and the answer is because we said it depends on how you give it to someone else and how that person's mind is affected by it so the poor person does not look upon a loan as sadaqah the poor person's self-esteem is not harmed by taking a loan as much as it is by getting a gift so therefore since his self-esteem is still in a good place. You're helping his self-esteem by giving him a loan or even better, by giving him a job. When you give someone a job, after a while, they don't feel like they owe you anything. In fact, they feel like you owe them. And therefore, since he doesn't feel like you owe him anything, you just did the highest level of tzedakah. So the highest level of tzedakah is, if you know someone is unemployed, if you know someone who needs a job, if you know someone whose outlook is, so instead of giving them fish, teach them how to fish. That's the highest level of tzedakah teaching someone how to fish, teaching someone how to get a job, teaching someone, employing someone, helping someone to find a job or giving them a loan to start their own business. If they're going to be a businessman, if they're going to be successful, then go ahead. That's the highest level of sadaqah. So that's how we got to this. It's a pasuk in this week's parasha. In kesef talvet ami, with money, you will lend my people or if money, you will lend my people. I want to move on to the most important uh, spheres of power in uh, Jew uh, uh, Jewish constitution. Now, it's interesting, when I was a kid in uh, high school in England, we learned about the constitution of, Amer of England, UK. And they talk about spheres of power. Every constitution, any, any good constitution has what's called spheres of power. In the United States, you got the president, you got the Congress, and you got the Senate. So three spheres of power, and then you have the judiciary. So what about Jewish law? In Jewish law, you have the king, Right, so the king is like the president in those days, um, and in today's day, right? And number two, you have the judges. Okay, you have the the uh, Sanhedrin. Number three, you had the priests. So you had all the priests in the temple, and number four, you had a loose cannon. This loose cannon was the prophet. The prophet was the one who would be involved in making sure that the other three spheres of power were doing the right thing. The prophet's job was. It's so hard to be a prophet. The prophet's main job was to go and rebuke if things were not going right. He was the messenger of God in society. If the king was not acting right, the prophet would have to go to the king and rebuke him, which is uh, dangerous to say the least. If the, if the judges were not acting right, they have to go to the judges and rebuke them. If the priests were not acting right, then they would go to the priests and rebuke them. And that was why the job of the prophet, you find prophets who were murdered on their job. Um, there was a prophet, Zachary, who was murdered in the Beit HaMikdash, in the time of the first temple, one of the reasons why the first temple was destroyed. So we have these spheres of power and influence. 
And now we're going to talk a bit about what is more important. You know, it's interesting because there's two main aspects to Jewish life, and that is laws between man and man and laws between man and God. So there's laws between which are ritual laws, and you'll find there's different kinds of Jews. Some Jews love rituals at the expense of other people. Other people love uh, laws between man and man at the expense of rituals. So what comes first? Does God come first or does man come first? The laws between man and man and laws between man and God. Which, which uh, laws are more important? Which laws come first? So it's interesting because laws between man and God, the laws between man and God, the laws between man and man, they're both from God. We Jews believe that God gave us the laws between man and man as well. In fact, this week's parasha is full of mitzvot between man and man. And it's for between man and God. In fact, the Aseret Hadibrot, the 10, uh, ten uh, sayings, which we talked about last week in Parsha Yitro, are also pretty much evenly balanced between laws between man and man and laws between man and God. And God himself gave us laws between man and man. So therefore, laws between man and man are not really just laws between man and man. There are also laws between man and God as well, because God gave us these laws between man and man. So what is more important? So you find different kinds of Jews pushing in different directions. I love laws between man and man. I love laws between man and God. So what is more important? So it's interesting. Let's try and bring some proofs from the Torah itself. So a very strong argument can be made that the Torah places priority not on rituals, but on laws between human beings. So where can we bring these proofs from? We find number one is in Parshat Vayera. In Parshat Vayera, since Abraham Avinu was talking to God, imagine, you're having a vision talking to God, and then if you see three Arab strangers walking down the street, you leave God and you run to the strangers. Amazing, amazing. How did Abraham Avinu come up with this concept that I'll leave God on the lurch? Can you imagine? I got a phone call from God, and then I got a phone call from a stranger, and I put the phone down on God and I run to the stranger. That's wild. How does Hashem, how does he leave Hashem and greet the strangers? So Talmud says, Gadol haknasat orchim. Imagine the greatness of having guests in one's house or having visitors over or feeding visitors, feeding strangers. Now it's interesting. Visitors are not people normally who have food. These are visitors who don't have food. These are visitors who are strangers walking down a dusty road in Beersheba, before Beersheba, the city was built. Abraham had his tent in Beersheba, which at uh, that time was a crossroads of the world. Uh, there were caravans going from uh, Mesopotamia all the way through to Egypt and caravans from Syria going through to Egypt and the crossing point was Beersheba, it's interesting. So he picked the right place to feed hungry strangers. Beersheba was the place to feed hungry strangers. He dug wells. And he had water and he fed hungry strangers. He ran away from God to greet strangers. So that's a very big proof that laws between man and man seem to trump, oh, pardon the expression, <laughs> seem to trump laws between man and God. So, Gadol Haknasat Orchim, the Gemara says, Milekabel Hashinah. Wow, that's amazing. To, to accept visitors is more important than accepting God. So, interesting, what, what happens? If uh, you have a visitor to your house and you need to go to a minyan. So if you need to entertain your visitor, halacha is stay home and uh, entertain them. The former chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, there's a chief rabbi called Moshe Amir. Very, very interesting. Um, he, he proves this from a number of halachot. The laws between man and man are more important laws between man and God. The idea of annulment in a majority. It's, all, it's called Bitul Barov. So we find this law in many different rituals, in laws of kashrut. For example, for milk falls in a meat soup. So we say it's a null, one in 60, okay? But that only applies to ritual. You can't use that law in the case of man and man. For example, a person robs $10 and he says, oh, no problem. I'll just mix that $10 with 60,000 clean dollars. So now I'm gonna null the robbery in my assets. Among my assets, I'm going to annul the robbery. Obviously, it doesn't work. So why doesn't it work? It only works by rituals. It only works because the Torah revealed to us in this week's parasha also, we go by the majority. You go by the majority. When it comes to rituals, we go by the majority. So it works. Annulment in the majority goes by laws of kashrut, the laws of schach for a sukkah. If you mix the schach 
kosher schach with non-kosher schach, all mixed together, you go by the majority. Laws of shatnes, you have more, uh, the wool is mixed with cotton and the cotton annuls the wool. So now you can mix that cotton with linen. So even though there's a little bit of wool mixed into the cotton, but it's annulled, you can mix it with linen. Okay, these laws are very involved. And a person has a question, they should ask a rabbi. But in general, there's laws of uh, annulment work with rituals, but they don't work with laws between man and man. So I can't take $10, which I pilfered, and mix it with $600 to annul it. It doesn't work. Laws between man and man cannot be annulled. When it comes to ritual, we have a general rule. A positive mitzvah pushes aside a negative mitzvah. So for example, the positive mitzvah of having a blue thread on your talit, which the blue thread, the Torah says, patil techelet, a blue thread, even though the talit strings are made, the other strings are made of linen, technically a person can put the blue thread. Why? A positive mitzvah pushes aside a negative mitzvah. So the positive mitzvah of a blue thread can push aside the negative mitzvah of shatnez, of mixing wool and linen. Similarly, brit milah. We do brit milah on Shabbat. Why? Because the positive mitzvah of brit milah, which is such a powerful mitzvah, it says it was given with 13 covenants. The brit milah was given with 13 covenants. It pushes aside the mitzvah of Shabbat. So it's interesting that there's a concept in rituals that a positive mitzvah can push aside a negative mitzvah. However, we don't say this by, we don't say this by man and man. For example, I want a lulav. I don't have a lulav, but I see my friend has a lulav tree, a palm tree outside his yard. I just want to go and steal a palm branch to perform the mitzvah of lulav. The Gemara says, even though performing the mitzvah of, of uh, lulav is a positive commandment and stealing is a negative commandment, normally you would say a positive mitzvah pushes aside a negative mitzvah. By the laws of lulav, we don't say it. Why? Because the law of ritual cannot push aside a law of man and man. So stealing is a law of man and man. And ritual cannot push aside a law of man and man. We see over there the power of the laws of man and man. The Talmud calls it a mitzvah haba'a A mitzvah which is done through a sin. A person does a mitzvah through a sin. How does a person do a mitzvah through a sin? I do the mitzvah of lulav with a stolen lulav, person steals an etrog, <laughs> tries to do a mitzvah, it's not considered a mitzvah. And if he makes a bracha on that lulav, the Gemara says, Ein he's not making a bracha, he's actually making a curse. So it's very, very important to make sure that one's money is clean. There's no way you can annul the money. There's no way you can make a mitzvah with the money. It's very important for the money to be clean. Our money will all be clean. Our money will all be pure. And we can't do mitzvot uh, through robbery. Um, so laws between man and man trump laws between man and God. Intent, kavana. We find that a mitzvah requires, mitzvot is called kavana. Mitzvah from the Torah requires intent, which means, which is why the rabbis made a bracha on a mitzvah. Why is there a bracha on a mitzvah? We thank God every time we do a mitzvah. Thank you, Hashem, um, for, do, for, uh, for letting us, for commanding us to do this mitzvah. Because when you command us to do this mitzvah, you gave us a power to elevate ourselves. You gave us the capacity to be able to sanctify ourselves. You gave us the capacity to sanctify who we are. So it's an opportunity. A mitzvah, a person should view a mitzvah as an opportunity. A mitzvah is an opportunity. A mitzvah is an opportunity for growth. A mitzvah is an opportunity for holiness. A mitzvah is an opportunity. It's not a yoke. It's an opportunity. So intent is an important ingredient. Without proper intent, a ritual becomes a mechanical act and its value is diminished tremendously. So it's very important when a person does a mitzvah to have intent. I'm doing this mitzvah because God said to do this mitzvah. I'm doing this mitzvah because God wants me to be sanctified. God wants me to be holy. God wants me to be among a holy nation. And that's what this week's parasha also talks about, that we should be a holy nation. How do we become a holy nation? These mitzvot are meant to elevate us. So a person does a mitzvah out of rote, is really forgetting this concept that mitzvah requires intent. And the power of the bracha is the, to give us the intent. Unfortunately, what happens is, when a person says a bracha many times over, <laughs> you start saying it by rote as well. And therefore they lose the intent in the bracha. We have to try and make sure when we say a bracha to focus on the words. Blessed are you, Hashem, who gave us this uh, mitzvah. Bezrat Hashem, we shall do a mitzvah with kavanah. Now, it's interesting. 
because that only applies, this idea of doing a mitzvah with kavanah only applies to mitzvot between man and God. However, mitzvot between man and man do not have any brachot. They don't have blessings. For example, the mitzvah of tzedakah, give a poor man uh, a, a coin, there's no bracha before it. How come? You uh, do the mitzvah of kibud abayim, which we talked about last week. You do the mitzvah of honoring your parents. There's no bracha before it. How come? Uh, a person uh, uh, does an act of kindness. For example, they help someone move the house. They're helping them uh, pack up their stuff and carry their stuff. There's no bracha. How come there's no bracha? So there's many, many different answers to this question. How come there's no blessing on mitzvot between man and man, between people? Man and God, you need to make a bracha. However, man and God, there's no bracha. Why not? Why not? Why doesn't it need concentration? And the answer is, it's obvious by the action a person is doing that they're doing a mitzvah. When they're helping someone else, it's so obvious that they're doing a mitzvah that they don't need to make a bracha. They don't even need to have kavanah because the kavanah they're having, the intentions they're having to help someone else are so obviously a mitzvah that they doesn't need to be sanctified extra special way by making a bracha. It's interesting that uh, doing a mitzvah between man and man does not require a blessing. Interesting. So uh, very important to know that, that uh, there's other reasons why, because there's no quantities in chesed, there's no quantities in acts of kindness. The Mishnah says, these things have no quantities. One of them is the laws of acts of kindness. All the acts of kindness, there's no minimum act and there's no maximum act. So there's no quantifiable amount which is on which you say a bracha. There's different answers why there's no bracha on uh, laws between man and man. What's also interesting is in litigation, you go to a court. So property litigation, which means between man and man, requires only three judges. And uh, however, rituals, you don't even need three judges. You just need one. You have a question, kashrut, you don't ask three judges. You don't ask the begin. You just ask, call up your local rabbi, one person. And that's enough. So when it comes to rituals, usually one rabbi is enough. When it comes to property litigation, laws be man and man, we need a bigot. We need three judges. So we see over there again that laws be man and man are stricter than laws be man and God. There's a beautiful midrash, which is a little bit controversial, but it's, it's a midrash. It's written black and white. And it's uh, Rabbi Huda Nasi. Rabbi Huda Nasi, the great Rabbi Huda Nasi, the author of the Mishnah says, in the Tanhuma, Midrash Tanhuma and Parshat Shmini, does God really care if you slaughter an animal from the back or the front of the neck? What does that mean? Of course God cares. What do you mean God doesn't care? So, so it's a Midrash says something really revolutionary. It says the whole purpose of the commandments is to purify and to unite humanity. In other words, Hashem's mitzvot, between ritual mitzvot are not there because there's a because they need to be there. They're there in order to elevate us, to, to make us holy and to unite us. Uh, so now it's interesting also in the laws of Teshuvah, the person makes a sin between man and God. He says the person is forgiven basically pretty much straight away. You just ask God and God is merciful. And God says, okay, I forgive you. But a person sins between man and man, I can ask the person himself, that's the hardest thing. To get Teshuvah from people is much harder to get Teshuvah from God. So first, a person's got to go and ask the person, Can you? will you please forgive me? I'll make amends. I'll pay you back if I stole from you. i got to make amends to you. And then after you make amends to the person, then you got to get amends from Hashem. So getting Teshuvah from people, it's much harder to get Teshuvah from God. So we see over here many different proofs that the laws between man and man are much more important in certain ways than laws between man and God. However, let's just final, uh, finish this off, this idea, this concept. So what is more important? So in this week's portion, we find it begins, the Parsha Mishpatim begins with legal commandments dedicated to morality and ethics, but it's not dedicated exclusively to civil and criminal law. After the laws of loans and pledges, the text switches. Uh, gears and it says you shall not curse God. So we're going from laws between man and man to laws between man and God. It says you will not delay the tithes. You give your truma to the Kohen. You give your bikurim to the temple. All these have to be given on time. So it's talking about tithes and priestly offerings. Then after more rituals and then more legal laws, the Torah concludes with the laws of the festivals and the Shabbat. 
So the question is, what's this to and fro movement? Why does the Torah throw in laws be man and man, laws be man and God, laws be man and man, laws be man and God? Just focus on one area. So the Torah is teaching us it's intertwined. It's like a cloth. A cloth has two parts, the uh, what's called the shti and the erev. It has the sides, uh, the wolf and the wharf. And without both, the cloth will not be a cloth. So those be man and man, those be man and God, they're all part of the fabric of Judaism. And they're both leading to the same purpose, to make us holy people. Laws between man and man. We need both. We need laws between man and man. We need laws between man and God. Now, what's interesting also is the order of the mitzvot. So there's three kinds of mitzvot. Very interesting. The first type is called edut. Edut are testimonies, which is a very hard word because it, when you look at the English translation, always look at the word testimonies. What are testimonies? They're mitzvot which serve as to give us witness. The mitzvot which remind us of certain events that happened. And therefore these mitzvot are called testimonies. They're reminders of certain events. So mitzvot which give witness to our belief in God, in uh, God's wonders and God's miracles, to, amaze, to remember the amazing actions of God are all called edut. These are testimonies. For example, Shabbat is a testimony that we believe that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. We believe that God took us out of Egypt. So that's a testimony. Uh, those are Pesach. Pesach is a testimony that God took us out of Egypt. Um, Shavuot, all the laws of Shavuot are testimonies God gave us the Torah. Laws of Sukkot, that God took us out of Egypt and put us in booths in the desert and he supported us 40 years in the desert. So these are mitzvot, which are testimonies. They are witness of certain events that happen and remind us of these events. Then we have Chokim. Chokim are laws with no rational reason. When we're going to get to this, we talk about Pashat Chukat. Why do we need laws with no rational reasons? And the answer is because when you have rational reasons, a person is able to rationalize. So there's certain laws, no rational reasons. If there's no rational reasons, Rashi says, there's no Yetzirah. You can't rationalize it. And that's it. Either you believe in God, you don't believe in God, but there's no way you can rationalize a law with no reasons. That's Chukim. And then we have Mishpatim, which is uh, this week's parasha, laws between man and man. So these laws between man and man are laws made Usually, it's made by society. Usually, these laws are made by society. Interesting. Uh, so I was watching an Israeli program about a guy who went to the Supreme Court, the American Supreme Court, and over there he said there were many, many statues. But the biggest statue in the American Supreme Court is the statue of Moses. <laughs> this is an Israeli reporter going into the Supreme Court, the American Supreme Court, and he finds all these different statues of all these great American leaders and other leaders. And in the middle, right in the middle, the biggest statue over there was Moses. He said, hey, so he asked the, uh, the policeman on duty over there, and he says, tell me, he says, who is this guy? So the policeman says, listen, Moses. He said, but who is Moses? What's Moses got to do with you? What's it got to do with America? He said, but Moses gave the Bible. He gave us the Bible. And from the Bible, we learn all the laws between man and man. All the civil laws are based on Mosaic law. We have to know that. All the, all the laws in America are based on, they're not completely based on, but they're based on Mosaic law. The laws in England were based on Mosaic law. So laws of Western civilization were mainly based on Mosaic law. Interesting. Why? Because... Parsha Mishpatim, this is the Parsha of Mosaic Law. This is, a, this is the main, one of the main Parsha of Mosaic Law. Three big tractates of Talmud, all the brothers, of Akamah, of Metziah, of Avatra, are based on this week's Parsha. Tremendously amount of information in the Parsha. There's tremendous amounts of information buried in the Parsha. Many minutiae, these are Mishpatim. These laws are different from regular secular law. law. Why? Because they have divine reward and punishment, unlike regular civil law. So regular civil law may lead to the common good of society, but over here we're leading not just the common good of society, we're also developing a relationship by keeping these laws, they're godly laws. They're civil laws, but they're godly laws, and they are making uh, us holy as well. So these are the mishpatim. These are, are, the, these are the, uh, the commands that we got in this week's parsha. Okay. So we went through, just a reminder what we went through, we went through 10 degrees of charity. We talked about uh, why it says, if, if there's money, then lend to your people. 
but there's an interesting, we talked about which, uh, what's, uh, which higher level of rituals or laws between man and man, we said we hadn't a really conclusion. The conclusion was that both equally important, that both part of the fabric of Judaism. Let's just talk a little bit about one of the biggest questions that people always ask. Rabbi, why does the Torah say an eye for an eye? Oh, this is one of the big questions. Everyone has this question. Why does the Torah say in this week's parasha? Actually, it says three times in the Torah in three different places. One of them is in this week's parasha, an eye for an eye. So why is it an eye for an eye? So there's a beautiful Vilna Gaon. Vilna Gaon says, ayin tachat ayin. The word in Hebrew for an eye is ayin. Ayin yud nun. Tachat ayin. An eye under an eye. He says, interesting, the letters of tachat underneath the letters of ayin, if you look through the Hebrew alphabet, the letter after ayin is faith. The letter after yud is kaf. The letter after nun is samach. So it says the letters after the letters of ayin, that's tachat, is kesef. Kesef means money. Money for an eye. The Gemara says it's impossible to give an eye for an eye. It's impossible to give a burn for a burn. It's impossible to give a bruise for a bruise. So obviously it's not talking about an eye. It's talking about money. So why does the Torah say in this language? It should say, give money, you know, go and estimate how much is an eye worth to a person? How much is the value of an eye? Which is what we do in today's society, in civil law. In criminal law is, is the guy guilty or not? In civil law, they have to decide. You know, it's interesting, all the criminal cases are based on Jewish law. The five things a person's going to pay are based on Jewish law exactly. Uh, you have to pay the value of what you did. So what is it? What do you do? So there's five things. Boshet, shame. Ripui, doctor's bills. Shevet, unemployment. Tsar, the pain. And, then, and the actual nezek, the actual damages. So there's different parts to the payments of civil society. However, what, why does it say an eye for an eye? Why don't I just say money for an eye? So if it was said a money for an eye, people wouldn't take it seriously. You wouldn't get people's attention. If you say an eye for an eye, people say, what? An eye for an eye, so severe, so how do you do that? How do you get? So people will get people's attention and it'll be much more strict in people's eyes. If you just say money for an eye, like, eh, I got money, I can pay for an eye. So no problem. 